You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. All right, um, we might get started with the Bible reading for today. So today's reading comes from John 2, and we're looking at verses 13 through to 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Uh, if you missed it before, my name's Aaron, one of the pastors here at, at DPC. Uh, it's great to be back with you, to be looking at John's Gospel together. Uh, there should be, I actually haven't checked the online welcome card, but via the kind of Sundays tab on our church website, uh, there's a welcome card thing and there's a, an outline of my sermon on there. Uh, usually there is, I haven't checked that it's come up today. Uh, but if you, if you find it useful to follow along with a sermon outline, then you can look that up. Uh, but it'd be great if you have the, the Bible passage open as well. I'll pray. Uh, gracious Father, uh, please help me to faithfully and clearly unpack this passage of your word in, in such a way that uh, gives us a clearer vision of who uh, your son, our Lord Jesus, is. Uh, give us hearts and minds uh, uh, that are ready to receive your word and be changed by it. Uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I uh, wonder what you would say you are zealous about. Uh, it's a bit of a funny word, that word zealous. Maybe it's not a part of your kind of everyday conversational language. Uh, what would you say you are zealous about? I, I looked up a, a dictionary definition of zeal or zealous during the week, uh, and this is what it said. Uh, it said, great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a particular cause or objective. When someone's really zealous about something, it means they have great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a particular cause or objective. Uh, synonyms uh, of the word zealous are words like passion and love and fervour and fire even. Uh, so with that in mind, what, what would you say you are zealous about? Well, what is it that fires you up? What is it that you really love, that you're passionate about? And maybe that's still a little bit too abstract and kind of up there, intellectual, uh, so one way that you could maybe diagnose what it is that you're zealous about is to think about what it is that consumes your time, your money, your energy. Uh, as I thought about that question during the week, it was pretty clear to me uh, that I am zealous about sport. 
Uh, zealous about watching sport in particular, uh, because watching sport really does consume my time. Uh, I've just had three weeks holidays. I said before, one of the things I made time for on my holidays was watching sport. Watched plenty of test match cricket, watched plenty of BBL cricket, uh, watched plenty of NBA basketball. You know, like I, I just consumed my time. Not only did I watch sport, but I also listened to podcasts about sport. Uh, I don't know if you do this, but, you know, you've got to stay on top of the latest trades and the analysis and the stats and, uh, you know, uh, sport consumes my time. I'm zealous about sport. Uh, it also consumes my money, uh, probably to a lesser degree, but I do pay for an annual NBA league pass. I don't know if there's any NBA fans here, but you can pay for a league pass and so you can watch the kind of coverage of your own local team and all the other teams in the NBA. Pay for tickets to you know, go to the Boxing Day test or to go to see uh, the champion Melbourne Football Club play at the MCG. Right, sport consumes my money and it consumes my energy. And maybe some of you are fans of the tennis. Perhaps sport has been consuming a bit of your energy as you stay up late to watch a tennis match. You know, the one that goes through to the fifth set and you oh, I wish this would end, you know. Or you get up early, right? Sport consumes your physical energy and maybe it even consumes your emotional energy. And maybe you're not as zealous about sport as me, but I can get pretty invested in my teams, you know. And if it gets to the end of a, a kind of a, a close match in the cricket or, or an overtime game in the basketball, I get to the end and I'm just spent. You know, it's consumed my energy because I'm zealous about sport. It fires me up. I'm passionate about it. I really love it. It consumes my time, my money, my energy. What about you? As you think about your life, what would you say you are zealous about? What consumes your time, your money, your energy? Uh, in today's passage, we get a glimpse into the very heart of Jesus. What makes Jesus tick? What is it that Jesus is really passionate about? What fires Jesus up? What is it that Jesus is zealous about? What consumes Jesus? Did you notice verse 17? Take a look at verse 17. And we see there, our zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Well, we'll unpack it throughout this sermon exactly what uh, is meant by that. But in summary, I want you to see that Jesus is zealous about removing every obstacle so that people of every nation can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. That's what really fires Jesus up. It's what he's passionate about. It's what he'll do, whatever it takes to achieve. It's what he's zealous for. Removing every obstacle so that people of every nation can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. So we're going to explore this passage by looking at three questions. The first question in verses 13 to 17 uh, is what is Jesus zealous about? And it's really that summary idea. He's zealous about removing every obstacle so that people of every nation can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. That's my summary of verses 13 to 17. You don't have to trust me on that. I want you to look at your Bibles uh, as we unpack these verses. You can see if you agree with my summary uh, as we look at the, God's Word. Look in verse 13 first. Uh, John says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
And you remember a few weeks ago, big thanks to Ben Drew, who uh, preached a great sermon on John the Baptist's ministry from the second half of John chapter 1. Uh, and John showed us, uh, and John showed us, Ben showed us that the core of John the Baptist's ministry uh, was the declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you remember, you can listen to the podcast if you didn't hear Ben's sermon, but Ben took us back to Exodus chapter 12, uh, the moment when this Passover festival was instituted. And when God said to the people of Israel when they were in Egypt, sacrifice a a Passover lamb, put the blood of the lamb over your door frames so that the destructive judgment of God would pass over their homes. So what's going on here in John chapter 2 verse 17, 13 rather? Maybe you can see a bit of the symbolism here that John's drawing. Here we've got Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God. The ultimate Passover lamb, where we saw that in John chapter 1, who's heading up to Jerusalem when? At the very time of the Passover. (laughs) When hordes of Jewish people would be flocking to Jerusalem to sacrifice their Passover lambs, to observe their Passover meals, to consume their Passover lambs. The temple precincts in Jerusalem would have been absolutely packed with Jewish people. So that's where Jesus goes. Look in verse 14. Uh, Jesus goes to the temple courts. Uh, Let's see, verse 14. Uh, In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. What did these people selling cattle and sheep and doves in the temple courts? And I reckon we're quick, you know, maybe if you've been around church for a while, we're, we're quick to, to be pretty kind of judgmental of these people. You know, how could they possibly do that? But on one level, they are just providing a practical service to the Jewish people. Right, to, to kind of facilitate their worship of God. Because I just said that, that many Jewish people uh, are coming a long way to Jerusalem to observe the Passover festival. Uh, and during the course of the Passover festival, they had to offer various animal sacrifices. Uh, and let's face it, it's pretty unpract- impractical to make a long journey while also bringing along a cow or, or a sheep or, or a cage with a couple of doves in it. And so instead of bringing animals along, what would they do? They'd go to the temple courts and they'd buy their animals on arrival and sacrifice them in, in, in Jerusalem. So it's a wonderful thing. Oh, is it? No. It's a practical thing. It's a seemingly reasonable thing for these people to set up these things and sell these animals in the temple courts. Likewise, with the exchanging of coins, like every year uh, the Jewish men would turn up to the temple in Jerusalem and they had to pay their taxes. There was this thing called the temple tax, uh, but it had to be paid using an old Jewish currency called the shekel. Now, that wasn't what that wasn't kind of the coinage they used in everyday life. They had their, all their Roman coins, uh, so they would turn up to the temple and they would exchange their Roman coins for the shekels uh, so that they could go ahead and pay their tax. Once again, it kind of seems reasonable. It seems a bit practical. These people are on about facilitating the worship of the Jewish people who were turning up at Jerusalem for the Passover festival. I mean, you heard the story read, right? You know that Jesus has a problem with it. Watch Jesus' problem. His problem is less clear in John's Gospel, but really clear in the other Gospels. His problem is that these people have set up their tables in the outer court of the temple, 
also known as the court of the Gentiles, because it was the only place that non-Jewish people, right, people from every nation, it was the only place that they could enter to worship the God of Israel. If If they'd decided, I want in with the God of Israel, and this was the only part of the temple that they were allowed to enter. So you can imagine, if you're turning up to the temple as a Gentile to worship God, you're there, you want to say your prayers, you want to maybe sing some songs, you want to read the Old Testament scriptures in the temple. And what's going on over here? You've got a cow mooing in your ear half the time. You've got a sheep bleeding away. You've got doves fluttering around in cages. You've got the constant clunking of coins going on over here. You'd say that was an obstacle to the worship of people from every nation, wouldn't you? It was something that got in the way of them being able to enter into and enjoy God the Father's presence. So Jesus is angry about that. Because what's he zealous about? He's zealous about removing every obstacle so that people of every nation can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. So what does he do? Look look in verse 15. So Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. Uh, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Uh, To those who sold doves, he said, get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And notice a couple of things here. First notice in verse 15, Uh, That little note, John says, Jesus made a whip out of cords. That's important because it tells us that Jesus, uh, what Jesus does here is not a kind of impulsive, rash fit of rage. It's not like he has a whip in a holster, like someone might have a gun, and he just kind of walks into the courts and he kind of loses the plot in a fit of rage. No, no, no. Jesus goes away and he makes this whip. I'm not saying he's not angry. But this is not an impulsive, rash fit of rage. It's a a calm and considered expression of God's righteous anger and judgment upon these people. Jesus is slow to get angry with them, but he is angry with them. And what's his issue with them? Well, notice what he says. You've turned my father's house, another way of speaking about the temple, you've turned my father's house into a market So even on the surface, it seems like these people in the temple courts are on about serving others. Here we are facilitating the worship of the Jewish people. You can imagine them saying, what's the big deal? These people need animals to sacrifice and we're providing them. These people need to exchange their coins and pay their taxes and we're providing that service. But Jesus sees right through that. He says, you're not on about serving others. You're not on about facilitating the worship of people. You're on about serving yourselves. You're on about leveraging the worship of God to line your own pockets with money. In the other Gospels, he refers to them as turning the temple into a den of robbers. He's saying you guys are stealing away people's worship for your own profits. And that's the problem here. If these people in the temple courts were really on about helping people to worship God, where would they have set up their tables? Outside the temple altogether. Not in the court of the Gentiles. You see what Jesus is zealous about? Removing every obstacle 
so that people of every nation can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. So in verse 17, where we see that when Jesus drove these people out of the temple, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, Maybe you've got a footnote in your Bible uh, that says that that's a little quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. Psalm 69 is a psalm uh, that was written by King David. uh, And in this particular stage of his life, uh, King David is being mocked and scorned and and ostracised, not just from the people of God, but even from his own family. Uh, We know that from the verse before it, Psalm 69, verse 8. Let, Let me read from, you should read Psalm 69 later on, read all of it. But from Psalm 69, verse 8, David says this. He says, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Why? For zeal for your house consumes me. So so King David is being rejected by his people, even by those closest to him, his own family, because what drives him in life, what, what he's ultimately passionate about is people being able to enter into and enjoy the presence of God in the temple. That's what King David's passionate about. So why is it significant that Jesus' disciples remember this verse from this psalm when Jesus drives people out of the temple? It's significant because it tells us something about who Jesus is, doesn't it? It's saying that that episode in King David's life is really just a shadow pointing to the real thing. It's a signpost pointing to the real thing. It's saying that Jesus is the ultimate David, the true David, the one that John has called the Messiah, God's chosen and promised king, the one who's come to establish and rule over God's kingdom. Jesus is the Messiah, the ultimate David, and he's going to experience the same thing as David did, rejected and mocked and scorned and ostracised, even by those closest to him. Why? Because he's driving passion in life. His great zeal in life is to remove every obstacle so that people of every nation can enter into and enjoy his father's presence. And that's what Jesus is passionate about. And I just want to pick up on that idea of people from every nation. Uh, In one sense, uh, I suspect that everyone here uh, is among those people of every nation. Uh, Probably there's not many people here, if any, of Jewish heritage. So in that sense, we're all a part of the Gentiles, the nations. Uh, But I do want to say in particular to the people who might be here today who were born overseas... Uh, Maybe English is not your first language. You've come to Australia to work or to study. I want to say that that I want you to see how passionate Jesus is about you. He's passionate about removing every obstacle so that you can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. It, It wasn't good enough in the temple in Jerusalem that all the Jews were being able to get in and worship God. No, no, no. Jesus wanted everyone to be able to come, people of every nation. So if you weren't born in Australia, you don't speak English as your first language, let me assure you that you're not somehow unwanted or second rate in the eyes of Jesus. He's passionate about you being able to enter into God's presence through trusting in him. That's verses 13 to 17. 
What is Jesus zealous about? Zealous about removing every obstacle so people, every nation, can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. And then in verses 18 to 22, uh, the key question is, what gives Jesus the right to clear out the temple? This is pretty radical of Jesus, isn't it? You you can imagine uh, that that people would have had some questions. He just kind of presumes to rock up to the temple, grab out a whip. Well, he doesn't grab out a whip straight away. away. He goes and makes it. But, you know, to to kind of drive people out of the temple with a whip uh, is a pretty bold thing to do. Uh, Imagine if someone did that right now. Now, we're here engaging in our worship of God, uh, and someone turns up uh, and says, Get out! drives us all outside into the heat. We'd have some questions. What gives you the right to do that? And that's what happens in this passage. What gives you the right to do that, Jesus? And Jesus' proof that he has the right to do this, the right to drive people out of the temple, the sign that he gives that he has that right, is dying and rising again. That's what we're going to see in these verses, because by dying and rising again, Jesus establishes himself as a new temple through whom everyone can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. So let's take a look at these verses. Take a look at verse 18 first. I'll give you a second to find it. Verse 18. The Jews then responded to Jesus... What sign can you give us to prove your authority to do all this? You say, what gives you the right? Show us your credentials, Jesus. Maybe you work in a a workplace and people who kind of flash their certain credentials, uh, they have the right to do certain things. Uh, When we used to catch trains, you remember those things that we used to catch? There's one out here. Anyway, uh, used to catch trains and there were those kind of officers uh, who loved to flash their credentials at you if you were doing the wrong thing. I I would never do that, but... um, but, uh, you know, uh, and they'd say, you're a fair evader, that kind of, like, this is the idea. What gives you the right to do what you're doing? They want Jesus' credentials. Give us a sign. And in verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, well, this is the sign I'm going to give you. Well, not some miracle. Well, it is a miraculous thing. But he says, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. Raise it again in three days. Uh, the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years. Uh, to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. Right? It's a pretty impressive sign, isn't it? Right? Jesus says, destroy this temple, tear it apart brick by brick, and even though it's taken 46 years to build, I'll whack it back up in three days. And now, of course, in John chapter 1, if you scan back to John chapter 1, the first few verses, you can do that later on. Uh, but we saw there uh, that Jesus is the creator of all things. Absolutely everything. And he did it in an instant. So if Jesus wanted to rebuild the destroyed temple in Jerusalem in three days, he could absolutely do that. He could do it in three seconds if he wanted to. He'd just have to speak the word and it'd be done. But you heard in Kelly's kids talk that that wasn't really what he was on about here. John clarifies that in verse 21. If you look at verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. So when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days, he's not talking about the literal, physical temple building in Jerusalem. He's talking about his body as the temple. He's saying, you guys tried destroying me, tearing me apart bit by bit, and I'll raise my body up in three days. I'll raise my body up 
to become a new temple, a new way through whom everyone, people of every nation, can enter into and enjoy my Father's presence. See, if you think about it, basically every form of religion and spirituality throughout history has had some sort of temple-type thing. A particular place that you go to if you want to access the divine or the transcendent, the gods, the spiritual, whatever label you want to put on it. But you had to go to a particular place to do it. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, I am that. I am the true temple. I am the one through whom you can enter into the presence of God, enter into the spiritual, enter into the transcendent. I am the one who will reconnect heaven and earth, making all the blessings of heaven available to people on earth. Right, Stu, a couple of weeks ago, did a great job of unpacking this from the end of John chapter 1. Remember, Stu explained how, uh, how when Jesus says, you'll see angels ascending and descending upon the head of the Son of Man. As Stu unpacked how this is saying that Jesus is the ultimate Bethel, tying back to Genesis, Jacob's experience in Genesis chapter 28. Right here, it's Jesus who will reconnect heaven and earth. It's Jesus who is the ultimate house of God, the ultimate temple. If you want to experience all the blessings of heaven, and then you must believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying in these verses. In short, Jesus can clear out this temple because he knows that by his death and resurrection, he's going to replace it. He's going to become the new temple. Oh, we see that in John chapter 4 as well. We'll come to this in a couple of weeks, but just briefly on this note, maybe you remember that there's a Samaritan woman. She says to Jesus, I see that you're a prophet. You must have answers to all my tough questions. Where are we supposed to worship God? Uh, Is it up at the temple on Mount Gerizim up in Samaria or down at the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem? What does Jesus say? Where's the true temple? He says, it doesn't matter because I'm the true temple. You worship God uh, in spirit and in truth. Uh, You worship God through Jesus who is the way, the truth and the life, uh, through Jesus who gives the spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. You worship God through me. Don't worry about which physical building you're in. Jesus is the true temple. This is the sign that Jesus gives the Jewish people who are saying, what gives you the right to do this? He says the sign is that if you destroy me on the cross, I will raise my body again in three days, becoming the new temple through whom absolutely anyone can enter into and enjoy my Father's presence. I'm just finding my spot in my notes. Now, if that's a little bit hard for you to get your head around, I hope I've been clear. Uh, but don't kind of freak out because look in verse 22. Right? Jesus' disciples also don't get this straight away. But after they see Jesus raised from the dead, John tells us, verse 22, that they believed the words that Jesus had spoken. They believed that the way to enter God's presence was through Jesus' death and resurrection. That Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that he was raised to life, that they might have life both now and forever. 
I said, maybe I don't ask this enough, but I want to ask, have you done that? (laughs) Have you believed in Jesus? Have you believed that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for all of your sins? For the fact that that you don't give God uh, the the love and honour and and worship and respect that he deserves. That's what I mean by sin. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and then he was raised to give you the hope of eternal life, a life now and life forever with him. Have you believed in Jesus? If not, let me urge you to do that today. Enter into and enjoy the presence of God through trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus, his son. If you've got questions about that, I'd love you to come and speak to me after church. Uh, Speak to someone at the Welcome Hub at the table at the back here. Uh, They'll be able to point you in the right direction. Or you could probably speak to most people here. Uh, We'd be eager to show you how you can trust in Jesus and enter into a relationship with God through trusting in his death and resurrection. But what we see in the end of the passage, it actually, uh, an even more important question than have you believed in Jesus, though that's incredibly important, is has Jesus entrusted himself to you? Has Jesus entrusted himself to you? Because in these verses we see that Jesus only entrusts himself, right, verses 23 to 25, Jesus only entrusts himself uh, to people who believe that he's kind of proved his authority to clear out the temple by dying and rising again. But not to, he doesn't entrust himself to, to people who are impressed by his miracles. So let's take a look at these verses. Take a look uh, first at verse uh, 23. Uh, we see there now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival... Uh, many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. Many people saw Jesus' miraculous signs uh, and we're told, John says, they believed in the name of Jesus. Which if you remember John's purpose for his gospel, John chapter 20 verse 31, his purpose is that we would believe in Jesus and find life in Jesus' name. So you read these verses here and you think that's a real success story, isn't it? Many people have seen Jesus' ministry and they've believed in his name. Hooray, hallelujah, praise God. And yet not. It seems that it's possible to believe in Jesus and not really believe in Jesus. There's something deficient about their belief. Look look in verse 24. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So so many people in Jerusalem did, in some sense, believe in Jesus. They were uh, impressed by his miracles, that they were uh, attracted to him, to his ministry, to his power, his authority. But Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because John says he knew what was going on in their hearts. He didn't need them, their personal testimony to say, hey, this is what I think. No, 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 Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. He knew that they were only interested in him as the powerful miracle worker. They thought that's how Jesus shows his power and authority, 
And they didn't get that Jesus would show his power and authority by his death and resurrection, by his body being destroyed and by him being raised again, as Jesus has just said. So Jesus didn't entrust himself to those people, which means he didn't kind of give himself to them. He didn't draw near to them. He didn't enter into a relationship with them. And there is a little bit of a warning here for us, isn't there? It seems that it's possible to be in and around Jesus and his people, to believe lots of things to be true about Jesus, to be attracted by Jesus, to be drawn to Jesus and impressed by Jesus, and yet still not believe in Jesus in a way that means he has entrusted himself to you, that he's drawn near to you, that you have a real sense of relationship with him. How would you know if that's you sitting here today? Or perhaps if your relationship with Jesus is just purely a kind of intellectual, abstract and cold thing. You've got no sense of a real and living relationship with Jesus, that he's drawn near to you, that he is yours and you are his. That's a word in trust. If you've got no sense of that, let me encourage you today to talk to someone about that. Let me urge you to to believe in the the Jesus uh, who's speaking about the true Jesus, not just your own version of Jesus, but the true Jesus who shows his power and authority as God's king, the Messiah, by dying on the cross in your place and being raised again to glory. But I suspect that that many of us, if not most of us here, uh, actually have genuinely believed in Jesus. Uh, And so we do have this sense that Jesus is ours and we are his. He's entrusted himself to us. Uh, We're in this deep kind of uh, union with him, a relationship with him. And yet, so often, what consumes our hearts is very different to what consumes Jesus' heart. If we were to say, what am I zealous about and what is Jesus zealous about? Well, we would have very different answers. So, so I assume that the aim is that our hearts might be more in sync with Jesus' heart, that we might share his passion, his passion to, to see every obstacle removed so that people of every nation can enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. But how does that happen? It doesn't happen because I get up here with a big stick and say, do better at sharing the gospel with people. But I reckon it happens as we contemplate and meditate on the extent to which Jesus was willing to go to remove every obstacle so that people like us could enter into and enjoy his Father's presence. You see, the reality is uh, our hearts are consumed by all the wrong things so often. People are, we're consumed by people and things other than Jesus. We're consumed by stuff other than the stuff that consumes Jesus' heart. I said, my heart often is consumed by sport. I've got to keep track of that. Maybe your heart's consumed by work or the pursuit of fitness or academic achievement. Maybe it's pursued by, consumed by family, career excellence. Whatever it is, our hearts are consumed by all these other things. So by rights, what do we deserve? We deserve to bear the whip of God's judgment, like the people in the temple courts. We deserve to be driven out of God's presence, 
We deserve to be consumed by God's judgment. But in God's amazing grace and love and mercy, that's not what we get in Christ. Read John's Gospel to the end. Instead of taking out the whip of God's judgment upon us, Jesus bears the whip in our place. You read the story. He's whipped within an inch of his life. That's what we deserve. Instead of being, us being driven out of God's presence because of our sin, it's Jesus who on the cross is driven out of his Father's presence in our place, crying out to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of us being consumed by God's righteous anger and judgment upon us, it's Jesus who is consumed on the cross, bearing every bit of God's anger in our place. That's the extent to which Jesus was willing to go so that we could enter into and enjoy his Father's presence, knowing him as our loving Heavenly Father, being assured of his love. That's the extent that Jesus was willing to go. And that he might, that by believing in his death and resurrection, oh, he might entrust himself to us. And that we might know what it is for him to be ours and us to be his now and forevermore. I reckon it's as you contemplate that, the extent to which Jesus was willing to go to remove every obstacle so that you could know God as your loving Heavenly Father. I reckon it's as you contemplate that that you'll think, well, well, I'll just do whatever it takes so that other people can enjoy that too. Why wouldn't I? I want to see people of every nation coming into my Father's presence with me. Enjoying that. And what is it that we do to to help remove obstacles? Oh, we don't have to give our lives. Jesus has removed every obstacle by his death on the cross. All we have to do is point people to Jesus. Point people and say, trust in Jesus' death and resurrection and you can enter into and enjoy God's presence as your loving Heavenly Father. What would you say you're zealous about? What really fires you up in life? I want to encourage you today to to consider what consumes your time, your money and energy, what what consumes your life. And ask yourself, how does that match up with Jesus and what Jesus has done for me? If Jesus was willing to give his all for me on the cross, am I really giving my all for him? That others might come to know God. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that uh, things that I have said that have been helpful and in line with your word would really take root in our hearts and bear fruit that uh, brings honour and praise to you. And we pray that anything that is chaff or rubbish would just be blown away in the wind. Uh, We pray, Father, that we would be really clear on what our Lord Jesus is zealous about. And we thank you for him removing the obstacle of our sin Uh, by his death and resurrection, uh, that we might be able to enter into and enjoy uh, uh, your presence, uh, our loving Heavenly Father. Uh, And we pray that that we might share his zeal for that cause, Uh, that we might give our lives, uh, that others too might be able to enter into and enjoy your presence. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen.